0: Thank you, ladies. That was rich. Thankful for that. We've had some folks come in since we started this morning. and just want to, again, welcome those who are joining us. For the first time, or first of a few times, we count it a privilege uh, to have you here with us this morning. Uh, if you're here and are willing, uh, there's a little card in the seat back in front of you. Uh, if you're that uh, That is, if you're visiting. If you would fill this out for us and let us... Um, connect with you all we want to do is get some information in front of you we don't want to uh, we're not going to show up at your house or um, inundate you with a bunch of emails or phone calls or anything like that maybe a a phone call uh, if that's okay but you can even say on here if you don't want that Uh, I know church visiting churches is hard because you're sort of stepping into what feels like a family context and that can be um, I don't know difficult so I want to just encourage you uh, to if you would reach out let us at least uh, get to know you and at least have a record of your visit and maybe connect with you uh, with some information also at the end of the morning when we dismiss this little table right here uh, there'll be somebody manning that table probably be clay will it be clay probably somebody like clay yeah yeah be a clay like person if it's not clay And uh, they can answer any questions that you've got about who we are as a church. They can also put some information in your hand. We have a little packet that we've sort of tried to get together, kind of who we are as as much as possible in in a little bag, which is is hard to do. But we've tried to do that. And there's also a little uh, gift for you in there as well to thank you for your visit. Um, We're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning. And if you would, go ahead and turn there. We're in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, For those of you that don't have a Bible or are not sure where that is, and if you have an ESV, which is what we have in the seat bottoms in front of you, you can take that copy, you can call it your own, you can have that copy if you don't have one, Uh, but that's on page 569, and it's okay if you don't know where pages are. As much as possible this morning, I want to try and help you, help folks find pages. We don't have a ton of places to turn this morning, but home base is page 569, I'm going to... Before we continue on, I want to pray. I want to pray for us as a people. Pray for, um, these are emotional times. Emotional times. You spend a few minutes on Facebook or Instagram, you know, whatever. I don't know, not so much Instagram, but Facebook, um, you can get pretty lathered up over what's going on in our country right now. And I want to encourage you, as the people of God, we shouldn't be lathered up. I think it's in, encouraged to speak into the context, but we shouldn't be um, fearful. I guess should be the, the the strongest encouragement this morning. So I want to pray that we can live like Abraham lived, who was living for the city to come. He wasn't living, dealing with, in a fearful way, necessarily what was in front of him all the time. He seemed to be living... In, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that he was living for the city to come, whose foundation is the Lord. So that should be our perspective. This is, we're, we're pilgrims here. This is a visit, and it's a long one, but it's, it pales in comparison to where we're really going to be calling home uh, for eternity. So uh, that should give us sort of a, a peace that, that should be unusual. So I'm going to pray for us as a church family that we'll have that peace in these times. God, we are thankful. Uh, we're thankful for difficult seasons. I'm thankful that we live in a, a place right now that is, um, is really populated by people who are very passionate about the future of our country. I'm thankful that we don't live in a place where people don't care. I'm thankful, too, that we live in a place where we have uh, context, where we can speak. We have a public square, sort of, a virtual one anyway, And places like Facebook are we have smaller versions of that at work or the water cooler or whatever whatever place we might talk about stuff. We have those opportunities and I'm thankful that we have the freedom to do that in our country. To speak about our thoughts. And Lord I pray what will condition our thoughts, will condition our words, condition our attitudes will be a peace that we're living for a future new heavens and new earth. That we're living for a time and a place that's not now. That's going to be very different from now. This should give us, um, I guess, an aroma. Now that's a sweet aroma. Uh, it might be an unusual aroma if we're not upset or worked up or lathered up. But Lord, I pray it's out of that and in that that we'll have an opportunity to encourage others with an eternal perspective, with a hope that we'll survive um, countries that will survive empires, I'm thankful that's the kind of hope that we walk in. God, too, I pray this morning that you would give us um, ears to hear. I pray for a clarity that would come from me that I know I don't have, that would require require your spirit to be at work. And I ask for that, Lord. Turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't like parachuting into a passage. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to do that every single week. We can't tell the entire story cover to cover just to look at a single passage. So um, my desire to keep from parachuting or my my, um, dislike for parachuting, I want to condition a little bit by spending just a few minutes giving us some context for where we're jumping in. Okay, we're jumping in. To Isaiah chapter 5, but I want to tell the story somewhat in an abbreviated version from the very beginning, if I can. If you'll indulge me and let me do this. Adam and Eve were created. We're going to start at the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created and given the work of tending a beautiful garden. They were given free access to the entire garden except for just one tree. They were told that if they were to eat from this tree, it would be the day that they would experience death. Well, it turns out they rebelled against God and, in fact, ate from that very tree they were not to eat from. And sure enough, they experienced death that day as they were evicted from the garden. And I want to use a word that I'm going to be using a lot over the next 11 weeks, or I expect to be using frequently. They were exiled from the garden. Exiled. Exiled from paradise and separated from their Creator. Paradise was lost. Then starting with Adam and Eve's son, the firstborn, Cain, man proved to be a rebellious bunch as Cain murdered his own brother, Abel. Over the course of time, as families of the earth populated and multiplied, man proved so sinful and rebellious that God ordained judgment through water called the flood. And only a few, and here's another word I want to introduce to you that you'll likely hear a lot over the next 11 weeks. Only a few, a remnant, survived. Only a few, a remnant, uh, survived, made it out alive. Noah and his family. Eventually the earth dried up and Noah and his family began repopulating the earth. Their offspring proved, though, with every following generation that the heart of man is desperately sick. Sadly, the flood didn't fix man. Man continued to rebel against his creator. In the course of time, God called a man named Abram from a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. He told Abram to go to a land that he would show him And to live there, the land of Canaan. God didn't call a young man full of vigor. He called an old man, in fact, the least likely candidate for populating a new people. And his old barren wife. And he told him to go to this land and he promised him many offspring. And he promised him also the land itself. So Abram and Sarai, later renamed Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, went to Canaan. There they had a son named Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and they had twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, another example of God using the least likely, or in this case, I think the least likable, then ends up with the birthright. Two wives, two maidens, twelve boys, and one daughter. And with God's guiding providence, they end up, this entire family ends up in Egypt. And it's here that what was a short visit to survive famine back in Canaan becomes a very long, extended stay, and specifically 400 years of enslavement in Egypt to the Egyptians. And then God, doing what God does, delivers Israel from Egypt. Israel, by this point, is a people. It's no longer just a family, but they have populated to be a complete nation of people. And he liberates this people from Egypt through what's called the Exodus. There's an entire book of our Bible dedicated to this story, the story of the Exodus. And then through a 40-year, what we might call a funeral procession, they find themselves back in Canaan, the land that was originally promised to Abraham. Then came the period of the judges, with names that might be familiar to you, like Gideon, Deborah, Jephthah, and Samson. These people were appointed to lead Israel. But Israel, all the while, though, pined for a king like the neighbors had. They wanted a king that they could see and touch. Not content with God as their king, God gave them what they asked for, starting with a man named Saul. Then a man named David, then his son Solomon, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam made a mess of the whole thing. Through Rehoboam's poor leadership, we ended up with two kingdoms. This what had been one nation and one people became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The split kingdom was really in many ways two times the heartbreak as it was two times the sin. Two times the rebellion, two times the disappointment. It was twice proof that man is indeed a rebellious creature. A man named Isaiah served as a prophet during the end of the northern kingdom and toward the end of the southern kingdom. And we're going to spend the next 11 weeks with this man named Isaiah in this rebellious nation called Israel We're going to finish this series with a final message on Christmas morning coming from Isaiah chapter 9. In the next 11 weeks, we're going to consider the rebellious heart of man and the justice of God through exile. We're also, over these next 11 weeks, we're going to see the mercy and grace of the very same just God in preserving a remnant. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 5. Let me just give you a little bit of brief context to let you know. We're going to talk about this in detail. We're going to spend our morning on this chapter broken down in three pieces. The first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 7, is actually a song. And it's a song sung by Isaiah. Just envision Isaiah wearing blue jeans with his Gibson in his lap. And then we'll climb into how this song unfolds. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now, I want you to kind of help, I want to help you make sense of how I'm going to continue reading. The first two, two verses are Isaiah singing in his voice. Verses two through seven are the person he's singing about. He's singing a song about a beloved friend. In the first two verses, you hear him speaking about this beloved friend, but in verse three through seven, the voice of the song, leaves Isaiah and becomes the voice of the beloved friend. We don't know who the beloved friend is yet, but we'll meet him here in a minute. The first two verses are Isaiah, but verse 3 is the beloved friend now singing. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay, there we have Isaiah sitting there in his cool, faded blue jeans with his Gibson. And as of the first couple of verses, you anticipate a cool love song. For he says that right up front. This is a love song concerning my beloved, a beloved friend. And again, we don't know who this is at this point. The people listening to the Isaiah sing would not have known who he's talking about at that point. They're anticipating a love song. A love song it is, but it's a sad one. We know that by the end of verse 2 where it says... The end of verse 2 that he looked for it to yield good grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This song that he's telling so far is a story of his beloved planting a vineyard, and the sad song is that the vineyard did not produce good grapes. It's a song about Isaiah's beloved friend who planted this vineyard in just the right spot. He took great care with this vineyard. He put in his, he put his very best, into the planting of this vineyard. He cleared it of all the stones. He dug the ground. He planted choice vines. And per verse 5, it says that he built a wall around it, or at least we know there's a wall around it, and a hedge around it, and we can assume that that's what he built as well. We also know from these passages that he built a watchtower and that he hewed out a wine vat. The watchtower in a vineyard was not just a place where people kind of hung out every every now and again. It's the place where the vine dresser actually lived. The sense is that he's moving into this vineyard when he says he's building a watchtower. It sounds like a man who has given his very best and who should expect the very best. He's put his best into this thing and he's expecting a fine crop. And in verse 4, he said, what more is there that I could have done? What more was there for me to do? But instead, verse 2 and verse 4 tell us that this vineyard yielded wild. And the word in Hebrew, wild, means stinking grapes. Wild, stinking grapes. At this point in the song, you might wonder what the audience is thinking They haven't heard the rest of it. You know, I've kind of read the whole section there, but they're still in the first part of this thing trying to sort through this. He's prefaced it as a love song, so they're expecting this maybe to be a metaphor of a relationship gone bad where a vine dresser puts his very best into a vineyard and then it produces wild grapes. Maybe it's a love relationship where maybe the gal went south on the guy. There are lots of songs about that, right? I mean, Daniel is listening to pop music all the time on our radio. And I I laugh about the song that I'm hearing all the time, that we don't talk anymore, we don't talk anymore, like a dance song. And I'm thinking envisioning two people who are not talking anymore that are dancing out and enjoying a dancing, but they can't talk to one another. (laughs) The love songs abound that are sad love songs. But verse 3 shifts from Isaiah talking again about his beloved friend to the voice of the beloved friend. And the listeners still don't know who this is just yet. As he appeals to them, the judge between the beloved and his vineyard, surely at this point they can at least appreciate that judgment is sure and judgment is fair. The vineyard has been given every reason to succeed, and yet it rebelled against Isaiah's beloved friend. Friend. And then in verse five, he says what he's going to do. The sad love song then turns from just being sad to being tragic, when the beloved says what he's going to do to the vineyard as a result of the wild, stinking grapes. He's going to remove the hedge. He's going to remove the wall. He's going to remove the protection. He's going to let the beautiful vineyard be overrun and trampled. He's going to remove his hand of care. No more pruning. No more tending. No more protection. And the vineyard will be ruined. Maybe up to verse 6, the people, the listeners, still have not quite known who he's talking about. By the end of verse 6, surely they're figuring it out. Isaiah is singing of a supernatural friend, for only deity can withhold or give rain. That must have been the moment where most of them are figuring it out. But at least verse 7 is going to help the slow ones. Because in verse 7, he lays out the key to the map, or the legend to the map, where they can make sense of the song. The key to making sense of the song is in verse 7, where it tells us that the vineyard is, is the nation and people of Israel. And the men of Judah are his choice vines that he planted. And the crop that he expected, it tells us two things, or two couplets, was justice and righteousness, but instead what he got was bloodshed and an outcry. These two words, bloodshed and justice, are these couplets. Bloodshed and justice and outcry and righteousness in Hebrew are almost indistinguishable. Here's what they are in Hebrew. Not that you want to know or that you might care, but just listen to how similar they are. Instead of mispat, they got mispa. Instead of sadaka, he got seaka. Instead of mispat, he got mispa. Instead of sadaka, he got seaka. I think these words are so similar to one another because it's really hard to tell good grapes from bad grapes. It's genius on the part of Isaiah. And obviously God's behind it, so we know it's genius. It's hard to tell good grapes from bad grapes because they look the same on the outside. Like these words are almost indistinguishable. But one is delicious and one on the inside is sour. I can't help but think about a conversation that Jesus had where he told the Sadducees and the Pharisees something. He said... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You look like really good grapes on the outside, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I don't think it's coincidence or musical um, finesse that he chose words that looked so similar to one another. Instead of justice, this vine dresser, the owner of the vineyard, got bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, the good grape that he was expecting, he got an outcry. And man, don't you know this? People should have been really good at justice. Deuteronomy chapter 4 tells us, it says, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is indeed a fertile hill. It's indeed a great place for me to plant you. And here's a beautiful law for you to walk in. But instead of justice, there was cruelty. Instead of righteousness, there's the cry of the oppressed. He planted promising vines on a fertile hill. He planted Israel in Canaan. He protected his vineyard. And he even moved into it permanently to tend to his vineyard in the watchtower that we could call a temple. Yet this people produced wild, stinking grapes. We're going to spend the next few minutes considering these grapes in two sections as we break down the rest of the chapter. We're going to look at six clusters of grapes. The first section is going to give us the first two clusters and the next section is going to give us the next four. And if you want to kind of identify where those clusters are, they begin with the word woe. There are six woes in the rest of this chapter identifying six clusters of wild, stinking grapes. Let's look at the first two. Beginning in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room. And you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. The first two woes are identified there. The first two clusters of grapes. The first cluster is dealing with this issue where they're joining house to house and field to field. If you want to get a sense of what the nation of Israel was guilty of, they were amassing wealth. Winter homes, summer homes... Beach cottages, mountain hideaways, they're amassing wealth and all the while they're forcing out the little people. Interestingly enough, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 tells us this, which is on display in the nation of Israel. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Ironically, he will never be satisfied. He who loves money will not be satisfied. It looks like that's what's going on in Israel At this time, I want more, more, more. I want that property. I want this adjoining property. I want that house. I want this property. I think the problem with this people is the correct amount of stuff for them was N plus one with N equaling what they owned. Anybody ever identify with that? I've joked with Christy before about the reality that the number of bikes that I want and need is N plus one with N being the number that I own. Man, I think we can all be guilty of this. They were amassing wealth, and it was never enough. The second cluster of grapes here we can identify here in this Passage, verse 11, where they rise early in the morning, they run after strong drink, they tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. The second cluster is they're running after strong drink and they're inflamed by wine. This is the sin of excess. They are heavily medicated, this people. They are heavily given and prone to seeking one entertainment venue after another. Let me bring these two clusters together because I think they're related. Let me encourage you to turn to a couple of passages. Turn to Luke chapter 6. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I'll give you a page number. It's page 862 in your Bible that's in the seat backs or seat bottoms. Page 862 in Luke chapter 6. The first cluster is they're amassing wealth. And the second cluster is they're running after strong drink. They're stuffed with food and wine and entertainment. And then in Luke chapter 6, some 700 years later, 700 years after Isaiah, Jesus is speaking to the very same people, the Israelites. And he says these words in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, but woe. First of all, before we even consider what he has to say, we're identifying woes over here in Isaiah, and we're identifying woes that Jesus said 700 years later. And they're spoken as if they happened a day apart from one another. I can't help but imagine that Jesus didn't have this context in his mind as he shared these woes as he preached on the mount. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation joining house to house, property to property, amassing wealth, N plus one. Woe to you. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I don't think the people were any different. This could have happened a day apart from one another, though it was 700 years later. Jesus says, woe to you who are amassing wealth, and woe to you who are running after strong drink and just stuffing your bellies and living according to your appetites. Paul has something to say about this, I believe, in Romans chapter 8. I'd like for you to turn there, and the page number that you can look for is page 944. Paul helps us differentiate between these two Types of living, the type, the type that's living by your appetites and the, time that should, or the, the type of living that is faithful. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, listen to what he says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. N plus one. Let me help you connect some dots here. Man, I'm confessing that I'd love to have another bike. And I can be guilty of this very same thing. Any of us can be guilty of, according, or of living according to the flesh. And this is what Paul is speaking to here. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds. That's all they think about. That's all they conspire about, getting that new piece of property, getting about getting that new house, getting that new thing. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to the vine dresser. It says God, but I want you to connect the dots. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to the vineyard owner, to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh will produce wild, stinking grapes. That's not what it says, but that's we're connecting and condensing and consolidating and synthesizing passages because that's what people do when they're not lazy. The mind that's set on the flesh or the people who set on the flesh cannot please God. Turn back to Isaiah. Just ideally keep a finger in Isaiah chapter 5 for the rest of the morning. I only have a couple other places for you to go, but home base is Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 12 sadly summarizes the impact of the first and second clusters. Look at verse 12. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. They are so overfed, they are so overspent from gathering and amassing they are so overdrunk that they cannot see the work of his hands or regard the deeds of the Lord. They are numbed. They are blinded by excess. And they are oblivious to the work and word of God. Now, God has a fitting response to these things. And we see those in the next three or four, actually, five verses, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice." And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture. And nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. The consequences for these two first clusters are so fitting. The first one is that these mansions that they've amassed, these big properties that they've collected, they will be ruins, verse 9 tells us. Nobody will even be living in them. By the end of the passage, we know that nomads will be moving in and out of them. And oh by, la- oh, by the way, lambs will be grazing in the yards. These places that they've amassed, they won't even be living in. And the ground that they've hoarded, ironically, will produce about a tenth of what it should. Because God owns the ground, and He owns the yield. The excess that these people have exercised in food and drink and stuff, well, the well honored men, ironically, will be hungry. And the rest of them will be parched with thirst, verse 13 tells us. And what will be hungry, if you want to talk about who's hungry at that point in judgment, Sheol. Sheol is the old ancient word for the place of death. It sounds especially like Romans 8. The one that's walking according to the flesh, their outcome will be death. The one who's living according to these clusters of grapes, amassing stuff and just stuffing your face with food and drink and your life being about just living according to your appetites, well, the outcome will be fitting. Sheol will be hungry, as you were hungry. What they'll be... What they will be really, or what will be really hungry will be shale to gulp down this people. The nobility, in fact, who likely were the most well fed. The people ultimately, though, in verse 13, get the worst news of all. They will be exiled from the land. Remember, that's a word we're going to be using a lot over the next 11 weeks. They'll be exiled from the land and removed and taken to a land that's not their own. And their own properties will be grazed by lambs and nomads. Let's look at the next, next four clusters. And we're going to break them down into four pieces and move quickly through them. In verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 5, here's the fourth or the third cluster. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. This third cluster that they're guilty of is that they're drawing on and tugging on falsehood and sin. Like in this tug-of-war, like they're pulling after these things. This is what their lives are about, falsehood and sin. And in fact, what they're only drawing on, ironically, as they're drawing on this falsehood and sin, and they're saying, come on, God, do your thing. They're drawing on God to be God. That's a big mistake. It's like the kid that's sitting underneath the ironing board that's pulling on a cord. He has no idea what's at the top of it. He just wants it. But he comes to find out there's iron at the end of that cord, big boy. Man, this people were tugging at sin and falsehood. It's not a great idea to call on God to do what God does when you're chasing after falsehood and sin. The fourth cluster is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In this fourth cluster, what they're doing is they're calling good evil and evil good. And I want you to think about this for a minute. How easily can we justify evil things, evil ideas, and even evil people Calling them good if they serve your own purposes. Man, we do it all the time. Any of us, all of us can be guilty of doing that. This ought to be familiar to us. Calling evil good and good evil. You may not be that obvious and overt, but how often do you make deals with evil folks in hopes that you're going to get a good outcome? Israel did it all the time. Making deals with Assyria or Egypt or whoever and not trusting in the Lord. They called evil good and good evil. The fifth cluster is in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Man, this is a proud people too, apparently. You can't tell them anything. Poor Isaiah. You're going to find out in the next chapter, God asks Isaiah, hey, you going to go to this people? And he says, sure, I'll go. But then he tells them, okay, as you go, they're going to, they're going to get deafer, and their hearts are going to get harder. And then he's like, how long I got to do that? Poor Isaiah having to preach to a people that said, talk to the hand. I've got no use for hearing from you because I got this figured out. I'm wise in my own eyes, shrewd in my own eyes. They alone understand all, they understand everything, and all others should just listen to them and trust them. And the sixth cluster Is in verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. Those two things go together. Interestingly enough, we're talking about alcohol again, but we're also connecting it to how you move and how you navigate through life and what you call just and true. The sixth cluster involves more drinking imagery. Their champions were the drinking contest winners. And they practiced injustice by quitting the guilty for money and depriving the innocent of justice. See, the reality is vice and excess gives way to compromise That's what would happen here. I think you lose the ability to judge between what's right and what's wrong. And then in verse 24, there's a sad statement. At the end of verse 24, let's read the whole verse since we haven't read it yet. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. Listen to these words. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. These guys have become God-haters. Well-planted, good soil. Good vine, every reason to succeed, they become God-haters. And God's response is in the rest of the chapter. Let's read it together in total. Verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. Then he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Now watch the tenses in this last few verses. Watch how the tenses change. What I just read was past tense, but keep watching And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. And their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. It's a mixture of past, present. And future tense judgment that gives the sense of a whirlwind of judgment is coming. They are reaping literally the whirlwind. And he will exile, there's that word again, he will exile his people, the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. He will literally call the dogs with a whistle. The dogs in this case are the Assyrians and the Babylonians. I wish I could whistle like Daniel and Christy can, where you stick your. I'd, I'd do it, do it, Daniel. Yes, come on dogs, come on Assyria, come on Babylonians. You're going to do my bidding now. You're going to be my instrument of judgment for my people. His instrument of judgment will be the pagan armies and he will exile them to foreign lands and they will be evicted, and here's the word again, exiled from the garden and experience the death that they lived for. The mindset on the flesh, turns out, is death. And it turns out it cannot please the vineyard owner. So what are we to carry away from this? I really have a one-point sermon. We've done the hard work. It's pretty straightforward what we carry away from this, I think. First of all, I think God's people should know this story. It's sad and tragic how the exile... Is sort of left out of the story for so many Christians. It was after seminary for me before I even knew really what the exile was. Tragic. After seminary. It was just a confusing mess for me going through seminary. It wasn't until I got here. That should scare you. (laughs) That should scare you. But man... God's people should know this story. God's people should understand this story, and we should pay attention to how this story unfolded. See, here's the deal. We too have been given every reason to succeed. We too have been well planted. We too have been well cared for. We too have been protected. Like this ancient vineyard and this metaphorical vineyard, God, too, has moved in to live with us permanently in the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's the reality, of God's people. He's expecting good grapes. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. This vineyard owner expects good grapes. Grapes. I have three more passages for you to turn to, and we're going to move through them quickly. The first one is Matthew chapter 7, on page 812 of your Bible in your seats there. Matthew chapter 7. God expects good grapes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. It's not an isolated incident. It's really all over the Gospels. In Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist is addressing the Sadducees and Pharisees that had come to him for baptism, and he said to them, "You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, "Ah, we're related to Abraham." Because see, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a theme because God expects good grapes. Ephesians chapter 2 is the next to last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. I want to show you in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if there's a more dear passage in my Bible to me in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and in some ways what I'm about to read to you is a summary of the story that I read to you at the very beginning is the context starting with Adam and Eve watch this and watch where it lands Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 and I'm going to read just read through and listen real close And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You lived in Egypt in slavery to sin and Satan. Every one of you. Paul's speaking to the Ephesians, who are a bunch of Gentiles. But he's also identifying himself in there, too. We, too, were, by nature, children of wrath. The Jews. He's speaking about the human problem here. And he says, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They all lived in Egypt, enslaved to sin and Satan. But God, doing what God does, being rich in mercy... Because of the love, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He planted us in some good soil. When he connected us to Christ, oh man, we were well planted on a fertile hill. He planted us with every reason to succeed. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well planted? Amen? Anybody want to agree with that? Man, we're a well planted people. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages people can look up at that vineyard and say, that Vineyard planter, that vine dresser is awesome. He's got a purpose. Watch the rest of it unfold. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You weren't saved by being a good person. You were saved in spite of yourselves, because you were dead in your trespasses and sins now here's where the fruit fits in. Here's where the work fits in. In verse 10. For we are his workmanship, we are his vineyard, we might say, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He expects good fruit. We've got to establish that. We've got to know that. He expects a good fruit crop from us you know what's really cool for me is I just find that really easy (laughs) I mean because I've evolved I'm not like Adam and Eve at all I'm not like the people before the flood at all I've evolved I mean you have too right we're not like the people after the flood either anybody (laughs) I mean we're not like those jokers we're certainly not like Israel. I mean, all this, these, these, these grapes, these clusters that we talked about—not <coughs> us. We don't have any of those kind of things going on in our lives, right? Because we've all all evolved. Man, don't I wish? Don't we wish? Man, were you struck by the similarities this morning? Like, oh wait a second—you're talking about Israel, but you're of talking about me. I'm I'm strangely uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable preaching it. I confess, N plus one. I have plenty of other areas where the grapes are strangely familiar. Man, if you're like me, then you know yourself enough to know that you see plenty of inconsistency and plenty of incongruity between what God expects and what we actually are. And if you don't see that, then you're guilty of whichever... Cluster of grapes, it was that was right in your own eyes. (laughs) So you're wrong too. (laughs) Sorry. It seems we're not different than Adam and Eve at all. It seems we're not different at all, one iota, from the pre flood people. We're not any different from the post flood people. And we're not any different than Israel. Their stories are our stories. So I think we're left with really two things. The first of those things is, I want to encourage you, in light of who we are, in light of what I just read, in light of where and how we've been planted, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. First of all, Don't waste the grace of God by continuing on with your wild grapes and say, well, that's just who I am. (laughs) Uh, God love him. God love us. Don't waste the grace of God by continuing on in your own wild grapes. If there are areas of your lives lacking justice and righteousness and instead you find maybe the love of money, Instead, you might find N plus one. Instead, where you might find excess. Anybody? Excess in food or drink. Places in our lives where we might find a numbness to God and His word, and the works of His hands. You should repent. We should Repent. First, he expects good grapes. And we should repent of those areas where we're yielding wild, stinking ones. Man, we should know that first. Don't waste his grace. But as you repent, I've got some good news for you. Turn to the last place I'm going to have you turn, in John chapter 15. This is how I can get up here and preach. This is how I can get out of bed tomorrow morning. And this is how, I think, the only way we can survive a message like this and man it's oh survivable with this it's oh so survivable in fact you can flourish with those incongruities you can flourish with those difficulties you can flourish in those struggles with what I'm about to share with you right here and it's so fitting like as if Jesus didn't know Isaiah listen to this John chapter 15 Jesus says I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. You guys have tried it, and you failed. Adam and Eve failed. Pre flood, man failed. Post flood, man failed. Israel failed. But I'm the true one. I'm the true vine. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And he says, abide in me, the true vine. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's like he told his disciples, which surely had also been very familiar with Isaiah chapter 5 and had been very familiar with the failures of Israel and very familiar, if they're honest, with the failures of themselves. He gives them the good news I'm the true vine. You haven't been, and you can't be. Israel proved it. Everyone has proven it. That we all need a replacement. We all need a new vine. And guess who that is? It's Jesus. He's the new vine. He's the replacement. It's like he said in this passage, I'm replacing your wild grapes with my own good ones. I'm replacing your many, myriad legion failures with my many legion perfect perfections. That's what I'm giving you. That's the good news, people. That's the gospel. That's what you share with co workers and friends. And if you think, man, I've got some wild grapes over here, I can't share with anybody because I've got those wild grapes. No, you're not the good news. He is. Man, that'll free you up to speak in Christ. He says, I'm replacing your wild grapes with my own good ones. And oh, by the way, without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, though, you'll bear good fruit too. Man, that's the good news. It's a one-point sermon. It's a long sermon to get to one point, wasn't it? And the point of it is, abide in Christ. He's all we've got. But he's enough. Trust Christ. Place your faith in Christ. Ask him to be your replacement. If you've already done that, then enjoy it all the more. Knowing what a perfect replacement he is. Love him, enjoy him, and follow him. Those are all part of abiding in him. Man, I pray that we can do that this, this season as we go into the fall. That this one-point sermon will be the clarion message throughout. That Jesus is the good news, the light of the world that's born into a very dark and honest setting. Man, let's enjoy Him. Let me pray. God, this is such bad news and such good news. It's hard to look at these clusters and not feel uncomfortable. God, I'm so thankful that in the same look, or in the next look at least, we can look to a Savior who's perfect. We can look to a Savior that is the true vine, God, I'm so thankful for this ancient story from Isaiah of an ancient people that were just like us. And I'm so thankful for our Savior. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.